Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Kim Adonizio. Her new book is called Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life, and it's just out from Penguin Books. So, Kim, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks. Glad to be here. So let's talk about the title first, Bukowski in a Sundress. It starts out, you kind of adopt this honorific in a sort of ironic way. It, it's, it's, um, it's something that a reviewer applied to you. And at first you sort of embraced it sarcastically, but it, over the course of the essay where you describe that, your relationship to the phrase kind of changes a little bit. I don't think it was meant as an honorific. I think it was meant as a very snarky comment. Mm -hmm. But I also thought it was very funny. So I did just decide to claim it, you know. First I was like, wow, that's not really the way I see myself. But then I just, I thought it was a great phrase and I just got interested in sort of thinking about that. And as I talked about in the essay, I tried to read Bukowski a little bit because I really didn't know his stuff. Yeah, it's funny because he's one of those writers who is really well known, and especially in Europe, but here too, especially a lot, a lot of young kids who are starting to write poetry for the first time. They go, oh, I love Bukowski, you know, so he obviously speaks to a lot of people, but he's not well regarded as a literary figure. And that's why I thought it was more snark than anything else. But, you know, like I said in that essay, he had some great things to say. Just the fact that so many people have responded to his work has got to mean something. And I was thinking, too, as I was reading it and, and reading some of the, the essays around it, you know, there's also that sense that, I mean, Bukowski, as you said, I mean, he has a very sort of like extra literary reputation, mm -hmm. particularly in American culture, I think. You know, the things that Bukowski could do in his life and be valorized for, or maybe not necessarily valorized, but, you know, I'm, okay, I'm thinking specifically of the drinking. It's not fully romanticized in his legacy, but there is this sort of sense of, of him as like sort of like almost like the noble alcoholic artist. Uh-huh. I was thinking about the, you know, the things that he could do and, in a sense, get away with that a woman author, and particularly because you do write about your drinking and, and other activity, a woman writer will be treated very differently for those kinds of things than than a male author like Bukowski or, or like Hemingway. or Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, woman author is generally treated very differently mm -hmm. for writing about a lot of things. You yeah. know, I, I mean, drinking, sex, mm -hmm. all, all that stuff. It's just it's such a different perception, you know, and I wanted to push back against that too. As you know, because you've read it, I've got some snark of my own in there <laughs> against particularly male critics, some of whom have just made some really sexist remarks. And I can't believe they just can get away with it. That pisses me off, and I want to push back. What are some of the most, yeah, I guess, egregious things that you feel have been said that you're, you're pushing back against, particularly in, in your case? Yeah, well, there's a critic named William Logan who reviewed me in the New Criterion a few years ago. He started out with something like, here's a hot babe who can bang out a sonnet. And it gets worse from there. So he's actually, I didn't mention him by name in the book, but he's the one that I ended up, a friend of mine made a little paper doll and we put his face on it and I cut him up with scissors and burned him in effigy sort of at a writer's conference. And I took a few funny pictures too, calling him Mr. Bill. Remember Mr. Bill? Mm -hmm. Mr. Bill! So, you know, we had some fun with him. He probably never knew it, but still. And I'm naming names now, so. <laughs> well, he knows screw, now. Screw <laughs> you, William Logan. But I think in general, women are just, I mean, I mean it's, it's just true. We're still in that kind of world, even here where we're supposedly so much more feminist and so, you know, so far beyond 
so much that's going on with women in the rest of the world, but it's still there. You know, we still live in that kind of culture, and women are still treated really differently, and the way women's writing is described is still very different. You know, there's always room to really look at that and try to keep having a conversation about it and mm. see if we can change it. I mean, I'm thinking even the first chapter in this book, which is about you at a writer's conference, drunk and getting progressively drunker and hooking up with somebody, mm -hmm. where, you know, if, if a man was telling the story, you know, it would probably be... Bit, be very readily spinned as sort of a conquest or, or an accomplishment. You know, we would never necessarily t ask a man writing about his hookups, you know, what's broken that makes you do this? And, you know, on the other hand, it could be spun as look at this asshole mm -hmm. picking up a, a woman at a writer's conference. So it it does cut both ways in, in a lot of senses. And it's just tricky territory for all of us. Again, I just feel like that's such a conversation we, we, we need to keep having. Even the word feminist has been cast as kind of a dirty word now, or, or women will go, well, I don't really consider myself a feminist, and that makes no sense to me at all. It's like, what, you don't want to be treated equally? You don't want equal pay? If you want those things, then you're a feminist, whatever you call yourself, and we should all be there. So in, in writing from that feminist perspective, you know, this memoir deals with so many different topics. There are essays in here about the art of writing, but there are also essays in here that get into like the whole family, your, your family narrative, very personal essays about your own experiences as a writer and as a woman. As you're, as you're writing through these, how do you do this in a way that, and I guess this is, this is something that you write about because you do write about the difficulty of writing, but finding that voice, you know, finding the, finding your, your way to say these things. That's really it. I mean, when you say finding the voice, mm -hmm. I can't can't really write a piece about anything until I find the voice of the piece. I don't know if that's my voice. I think of it more as like the voice that this piece needs to have in order to go where it needs to go. I can't tell you exactly. It's one of those things that you don't really know how it happens. You just keep... I mean, I've been writing for seriously for 30 years. And I started as a poet. I still am a poet. And poetry just taught me so much about language. So I think that was really helpful in turning to prose and writing prose because I had done a lot of study of language itself. And I think in general, prose writers who begin as poets have a bit of an advantage in some ways because we've learned about image, we've learned about metaphor, we've learned about the rhythm of a sentence and those things are really helpful when you turn to prose. In poetry it's often finding the rhythm to start something and in prose for me anyway it's more about whatever that voice is, whatever that particular way of saying it is that feels interesting to me instead of the more kind of flat-footed way that I write when I'm writing in my journal or I'm just taking notes and it's boring and deadly and it's just not any good. And somehow, if I do that enough, sometimes I, th I think of it as like dowsing for water. You go along and suddenly like you hit that underground stream. And when you hit it, you're in some kind of flow of language. And if I can find that, then I can, I can write the piece. Circling back to what you said about starting out as a poet, there's a piece in here You've often been described as a confessional poet, but there is one piece in particular where you say, oh, okay, you want to call me a confessional poet? Let's go through the poems here and sort out, like, you know, exactly what's real. You know, what, what are the confessions in here and what are... 
you know, what are the stuff that I'm telling you now I actually made up? Yeah, I, I mean, I have been playing with that for a long time. You know, we all categorize. It's one of the ways that we get through life is figuring out where to put things. And I started getting called the drinking poet at some point. Like some people are the Zen poets and other people are the working class poets. And, you know, people get put in those little categories and it's sometimes hard to break out of that. And I guess just like the title of the book, I just decided to play with that persona rather than continually saying, no, no, look, you know, I do all these other things or, you know, well, look, I've written other books and they aren't about me at all. And instead I just sort of went, okay, go ahead and think that if you want to think that. So I guess that's just something in my character <laughs> that wants to do that for better or worse. You know, sometimes I do feel like, okay, now I'm imprisoned in this persona. But then again, you know, hopefully if it brings people to the work and they see something else in it or they see that there's more going on, then, then maybe that's a good thing because it's, it's just a way to say, hey, here I am. And like every writer, I want to be read. Not because I think that I have all this brilliance or wisdom to impart, but because I feel that, you know, memoir, any memoir, reading memoir, like why do we read it? And, and how is it not just an act of narcissism? to write about yourself in your own life. And what I've gotten from reading memoirs and from all literature is a sense that I'm not alone and that I'm less alone in the world because I read that somebody else has gone through something that's been very painful or difficult or beautiful. It just makes me feel more connected and realize we're just all in it together. So that's how it helps me and that's how I guess I had the hubris to write poetry that's partly at least or seems to be directly from my own life and to write personal things and then to go ahead and write a memoir. Who are some of the the memoirists or, or poets who, you know, as you say, have helped make you feel less alone and, and sort of like that you really had that that strong reaction to? When I was just starting out as a poet, Sharon Olds was very important to me because she said things in poems that I didn't know you could say. And that opened up a lot for me in terms of realizing that you could actually talk about things that I thought weren't supposed to be in serious poetry. And then in prose, people like Kathy Acker, for example. I, at one point I was reading a lot of Miller and Jean Genet and Kathy Acker and George Bataille and all these writers and, and Susan Sontag's essay, The Pornographic Imagination, and thinking about all those things as modes of writing, expanding the possibilities of what could be said and understanding that writing is about being human, so nothing about being human should be off limits to us as writers. And for some reason, for some people, that seemed to be a new idea in poetry, which makes no sense to me. We've got Catullus. <laughs> We've got all sorts of people throughout history who have been doing this. And yet I got called edgy a lot of times. And I thought, well, I don't really understand what's edgy about it. It's human experience. And so why not talk about anything that we are obsessed with or interested in or, or thinking about or experiencing. And I guess I've just always been drawn to a certain aspect of experience. I'm always sort of going down rather than looking up. I'm not sure why. I mean, I could have some sort of therapeutic psychological reasons why that's true, but I've just been drawn more to sort of the margins and the stuff that is maybe not as talked about in polite conversation. I mean, if I go to a dinner party and 
is people are sitting there sort of stiffly. My first reaction is, I want to fuck this up somehow. I want to make some trouble here. Not out of disrespect, but because it's just hard for me to tolerate a certain kind of decorum. And so, yeah, I, I guess it just goes back to kind of what your character is. And then that edginess or, or that reputation for being edgy, yeah, as, as we've been talking about, it becomes sort of a two-edged sword. You know, there are probably just as many people for whom edgy means out of order or or out of place as it does out there and, and pushing the, you know, the, there are some people who will say you're pushing the envelope mm -hmm. and there are some people who will say, well, you know, you're rocking the boat. I think in a way that there there is no envelope, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like space. <laughs> it's just at some point, I guess the universe collapses in on itself and that's the envelope or that's the edge. And that's not to say that I feel like everything is or should be about trouble and whatever you want to call that. It, it, I, it's not that I feel that. You know, as we're talking, you know, I'm thinking about the first times I read Kathy Acker. I mean, it's pretty much like a grenade going off in your head. Yes. Um, she was just doing stuff that, you know, at least for, for most readers, you know, this was their first serious encounter with this kind of transgressiveness. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly for, in my experience, and it sounds like in, in yours me as too. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's a certain part of me that the long-term legacy of that is, is that's like, well, that's, I, I mean, I almost feel like that's something that every writer should aspire to, but at the same time, there's another part of me that it's like, well, that's also kind of an impossible ideal in a, in a, in a way as well. What is the impossible that's, ideal? That sort of sense of like, you know, that any book should be like a, a, a grenade going off in your head, like should, should completely blow you open. Yeah. Again, there's so many ways of being in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that idea of every, that everything should blow you open, but I think we, we couldn't possibly live at that pitch. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not a good idea to either live at that pitch or read at that pitch all the time. And there are other things we read that are just like, I love Elizabeth Bishop and, as a poet, and she's a model of decorum really. But she's a beautiful writer, and I love her work, and I wouldn't want her to, you know, drop any four-letter words into, I don't think she has any in any of her poems. And she shouldn't, because that's not what those poems require, and that's not what that sensibility requires. And I admire that as much as I admire anything else, or anyone else. I love Hopkins, uh, and another poet that I just love and have been rereading is is Gerard Manley Hopkins, and mm -hmm. you know, there's so many poets that that I draw a lot from, and they're they're not at all like that. So, I, I think it's good that we have a lot of different kinds of writers out there. I wouldn't say now that Kathy Acker is somebody I go back to, mm -hmm. or Sharon Olds either. They were important to me in that sense of giving me that feeling that oh, I can actually write whatever I want. That freedom as an artist made me realize that. And so then I sort of, as you do with a lot of influences, you go through them. You mm -hmm. know, they're valuable to you at a certain time, and you need them at a certain time, and hopefully you find them at the time of your life you need them. But then you change, and mm -hmm. suddenly they're different books to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like Bukowski is probably another example of that, that, uh, you know, you find him at a certain age in your life. Yeah, you know, it's very revelatory and opens up a world of possibilities for you. But like, oh my God, I could write about this. And these things are the subject of literature or the subject mm -hmm. of poetry. And right. 
uh, and then get on with your life. And 15, 20, 30 years later, you look back at it and you see it in a completely different light if you bother to look back at it at all. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like everything else in life, right? Like relationships, all of it. You know, what you said just a little while ago about, you know, living at that pitch or reading or writing at that pitch is really important too because you know there are chapters in here i think particularly when you're talking about your relationship with your mother and your brothers mm -hmm. you know they're emotionally explosive for the reader to experience but in a more quiet way almost in a more subtle way almost i mean like i mean when you write about the brother that you're estranged from and how somebody attempts to put you back in touch with him and and you processing those emotions i mean that is an emotionally difficult thing to read it's an it's an explosive thing it's not as much of a fireworks display per se as as some of the other writers that we've talked about but but in its way it has the power it needs it, you know everything we've been talking about in terms of finding your voice that was the voice you needed to in, in, to tell that story yeah it wasn't one i mean there are a number of the essays that are comic but that wasn't one that really even though there's some of that in there it, it, it couldn't be a comic essay it was about something else and going back to the thing of being less alone I'm not the only person who's had a mentally ill family member I hope that writing about that that having a brother who's mentally ill and going through the sort of violence and, and the things that happened in our family that skewed so much of what we might have been otherwise and I think that has happened for a lot of people and maybe just by hearing what my experience was, someone else may say, oh, all right, I've been through that, or I understand that better, even though I haven't been through that. I think there are those two kind of poles, right? You either find something that is in your experience that you connect to, or you find something that's foreign to your experience, and you see how it is for another person. Because, as you, as you said, like, you mean, there are these ones that, are, that have that emotional power, there are these ones that are more comic. We've talked about, like, you know, the ones that are about the writing process. A lot of different threads going on in here. This was not written as, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a memoir. It seems very clear that this started out as individual essays. And so I want to sort of maybe talk about, about the point where enough of these things seemed to start fitting together that you were like, is there a book here? Well, I had written actually a memoir that was a sort of consecutive straight through several years before, and it was rejected everywhere, <laughs> and and so I, I kind of abandoned it. But there were things in there that I thought were worth saving, so I thought, well, maybe I can cannibalize this and pull a few essays out. I had a couple of other essays that editors had requested. And then when I started looking at that material, I started thinking more, no, there is something here that makes it a book, that makes this all connected, and it was the writing life. And it was that my writing and my life feel so intertwined. I don't know who or what I would be without relating to life through writing and reading. That's when I really realized that there was something else, and I abandoned sort of the whole direction of the one previous to this, which was mostly about a breakup that I had gone through, a long-term relationship that broke up, and that was the center of that. And that's hardly mentioned in this, and I'm glad because it, it wouldn't have been kind to the person. It was not a good breakup, and, and I was I felt kind of badly used by some of the things that happened in that relationship. So I'm glad that it didn't end up being that. 
because I, I actually really, one of the biggest things for me that I have to tell myself a lot and think about a lot is just that simple precept of be kind. And I found that more and more in life, that's what I really value is people who are kind. And I have a tendency towards snark, so I have to kind of watch when I'm being funny and try not to hurt anyone, at least that I'm close to, and try to say, well, this is my story that I'm telling, and I'm not trying to hurt anyone with it. I'm trying to tell my story. Yeah, and I think that comes through in, in these stories as well, that there is a certain degree of snark, but I think a lot of it is directed at yourself rather than another. I mean, there's some at other people, but there is a lot at yourself. And also that there is a way of going out of your way to be kind to the other people that you're writing about. Even when you're sort of acknowledging the ways that you feel hurt by them, you're also flipping that around and finding ways to be kind to them in the telling of that story. Yeah, and I think the, the one about my brother was one of the hardest to write because, you know, there's a lot of residual anger and stuff over my childhood, and I really wanted to write that in a way that acknowledged that but wasn't trying to write the that piece as payback. You know, like, well, fuck you. This is my chance to get back at you. And I really didn't want that. And and that made me really look at it more closely and empathize more with him. Even though I used to say I hated him, I don't hate him. You know, I mean, I still love him. He's, he's my brother. But I can't be in contact with him anymore. And I, I feel a lot more empathy for him now that I understand more about what that means to be struggling with your own stuff and be angry and taking it out on other people because it's really about what's happening inside yourself. I finally came to that understanding and that, that's one of the things that I tried to say in that piece or that helped me say it. Another chapter where, or that comes through is there's a essay that you write about being in a relationship with somebody who is much younger. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming now that this is not the, or the relationship that you originally wrote about. No, it's not. not. The way that you write about that is much more, I, I, I think it's very much about your anxieties and frustrations about that relationship. And even though that relationship did not end well, you know, you write about about it in a way that is very sympathetic and empathetic of him. And you're not really pointing fingers, putting blame anywhere. It's, you know, it's writing about how that relationship came together and how it came apart you know, with as much unflinching honesty as you can. That's the idea, is mm -hmm. to try to be honest about it. And, uh, you know, I often, when I teach, I have a lot of students say, well, I don't know if I can write this because my family's going to read it, or what do I do about that? And I try to just tell them that they need to tell their own story. And to just keep that in mind, that it is their story, and they can claim their story. And to understand also that some people, you're not... You don't, again, going back to kindness, you don't want to intentionally hurt anyone, but you also have a right to tell your story and how it looks from your point of view. And it helps if you can get a sense of how it looks from their point of view. That helps you to tell your own story in a way that will work out. And in a way that is much more compelling, interesting, however you want to put it, in a way that's much more compelling than, you know, score settling. That it's like, I mean, listening to somebody or, or, or reading somebody who's basically like going through their life, pointing out how all their enemies were wrong and all the haters were wrong. And, mm -hmm. and even if you're not as far as you want to be in life, it's not your fault and, and you were great. It's like, I mean, that gets old really fast. Yeah. Except for William Logan. <laughs> Fuck you, William Logan. <laughs> That's the only person I really want to say that to. Um, but somebody needs to say it to him. He's made his reputation on being nasty to people. Bullies should be called out. That's what I think. I think, too, that you can't allow bullies, whether 
you know, circling back to what you were saying about students telling you, it's like, oh, I don't think, you know, I can't write this. My family would read it. You know, I don't know how they would. Bullies, you know, liter- bullies in the form of literary critics are another form of things that you can't let hold you back. You can't worry, like, what someone else is going to say about your work. Yeah, and it's about silencing people, mm-hmm. and women are silenced all the time, and gay people are silenced all the time, and I mean, there's so many ways that that we're sort of shoved down, and it's only when people start to push back and start to speak up about those things that a little change can happen, from Black Lives Matter to what just happened in Orlando. If we don't say anything about those things, then they just go on. So it's, I think that's just so important that we have to make noise about things that are, are happening that we don't like and that I don't want to, let's not go in the, the political circus, mm-hmm. which doesn't even deserve to be called a circus at this point. But, you know, someone needs to say, this is insane what's happening. And the more people say that and recognize that and talk about that, the more chance there is that things are going to change for the better. One thing that you, as a writer, you've had to learn and that all writers have to learn is we've talked about the first memoir that didn't go anywhere. And there's also a chapter in here that you write about a novel that you had written that was rejected everywhere as well. I think part of the confession's of a writing life aspect of this is this sense of recognizing that as a writer not everything is going to be fed with like you know cake and confetti the minute you hand it in and there are in fact things that you're going to turn in and nobody's going to get as much as you might love you might have to you know as you did with the, that first memoir saying like why isn't this connecting with anybody what do i need to do to fix this there's that line of like knowing how long to persevere with a, an individual project before you really need to start seriously thinking about changing it. Yeah, or giving it up. Mm -hmm. And that's really a hard line to find. I still think about that novel, that third novel, and think, well, maybe someday I will go back to it. Right now it's been abandoned, but I might pick it up again at some point and be able to see what it needs and how to make it fly. Or I might not. And the thing about being a writer is there's a lot of failure. I don't even know if that's the best word, but isn't it Beckett that said, you know, fail better? That, I think, is really important to realize that you can fail at even a big project like a novel, and you can still go on and create other things. It doesn't mean you failed as a writer. It means that project didn't make it. There are a lot of projects that just don't make it for whatever reason. Either our courage fails us, (laughs) and we go, I just can't deal with this anymore. and I don't think I can fix it, to you lose interest at some point. You need a very large amount of obsession to write a novel, I discovered. I don't think I really ever want to write another one. It was so tough. My second novel, My Dreams Out in the Street, it took 10 years, and I abandoned it several times in that 10 years. And it took actually a little bit of criticism from a former professor to make me stop and give up. And then, a few years later, it took a little bit of support from another writer to make me go back to it. So those things can be very tricky. I mean, we're all, you know, we're such sensitive people. There's so much to... Anyway, you do have to have that that balance of sort of being open, but also developing a bit of a thick skin and going, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm determined to do no matter what. And you have to have that. If you're going to get anywhere. Yeah, circling back to something you said way at the beginning about the idea that you have been known as, you know, the, quote unquote, the drinking poet. And 
you know, reaching that point of saying, it's like, okay, well, if that's what you want to think about, be fine. And I think that there's a real tightrope that you or any writer with any sort of reputation has to walk in terms of completely not caring what people say, what reputation you have, or sort of acknowledging that reputation and playing with it, or simply playing up to that reputation, which is is a trap that I think some writers fall into, whatever that reputation may be. Yeah, and I think, you know, your work has to eventually disprove that reputation or complicate it in some way. Like my daughter, Aya, is an actress, and she's now in a TV comedy called You're the Worst. So because of that, I think she's been somewhat branded as a comic actress. But then they went into some really dark material in their second season, and suddenly people realized she can do drama. And I think actually about Woody Harrelson, you know, when he was playing the guy in Cheers Mm -hmm. to go way back. Everybody saw him as that because he did it so well that everybody just assumed that that was the kind of actor he was. But he was such a good actor, he could do that well and then show people what else he could do. And that was a, a beautiful thing. And, of course, I love to see it happening for Aya in the same way. So what are you working on these days? <laughs> Music. <laughs> I used to play flute in my 20s. I play blues harmonica, which I took up in my 40s. And I've just been sort of at a dead end with writing. So what I do when I can't do that is I go to something else. And so I've been taking flute lessons again and and starting to learn how to improvise jazz, which is a big challenge. But it's helping me to stay creative and feel connected to some kind of creative energy while I can't write. I tried for a couple weeks every day and nothing was coming and nothing was coming. And I finally just said, enough, stop. My brain is telling me that it's time to take a break and do something else and it'll come back eventually. I have faith that it will now because I've gone through this so many times that I know eventually something will happen and I'll start writing again. I do have a second book of essays started. It's just very, very, it's not even quite a fully formed fetus yet, but I, I can see that it's going to eventually go somewhere. Cool. Well, there is that to look forward to much, much further down the road that it sounds like. In the meantime, there is Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life. It's just out from Penguin, and I've been talking with the author, Kim Adonizio. You have been listening to Life Stories. If you like the podcast, I hope that you might go onto iTunes, give it several stars, and write a nice review. It'll make it that much easier for other people to find the podcast and listen to it as well. I'm Ron Hogan, and I look forward to meeting up with you again on another episode soon. Thanks. Take care.